Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Acts, chapter 9, verses 1 to 31, which can be found on page 917 if you're using the Black Pew Bible in front of you. Please stand as we read God's word together. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. 
But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is God's word. You pray with me this morning? Lord, we're so thankful that you're here with us. Pray that you would speak, that you would open our eyes to see you and our ears to hear what you have to say to us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a pleasure to be here with you all this morning. I'm glad we made it through the snow. I'm glad you all made it here. Um, I was a little bit worried when I got that email this morning and it said, all services are on as scheduled. I was like, That's... so... But, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun to be here. I want to start with a story from my freshman year of high school. I was in a math class, and we would have exam reviews the day before the exam. And so our teacher would use this as a chance to not just review for the exam, but to, to give extra credit if you were the quickest one to solve the review problems that she would put on the board. And I was with, paired up with a friend of mine who was legally blind, so he could still see, but he had to have, he couldn't see the whiteboard, so he had to have the solutions blown up in front of him. And so we weren't supposed to look at those until after, after we had solved the problem, but I confess to you, we did. We looked at them, and we got a lot of extra credit that way. <laughs> now, I didn't really want to con- confess, start my first sermon here with an admission of cheating at school, but that's what happened. And our, we were so good at it that our teacher, she didn't catch on, but she, she split us up give other people a chance to get extra credit. And that was when things really exploded because he continued to use the answers and I was mad because it didn't benefit me anymore. And so I would loudly accuse him of cheating in class and he didn't take to that very well, as you can imagine, and our friendship pretty much ended. And yeah, it was a fracture in our friendship. And so it was like that for about a year, but about a year later, for some reason, surprisingly, we started to to talk to each other again. It was much more like me at that time to hold a grudge and just kind of move on and forget about him, but we actually reconciled and we became friends. And we actually were best friends our junior and senior year of high school. Um, when I reflect on it now, it's, it's surprising that we reconciled. I'm not sure why we did, but I'm thankful that we did because it gave us the opportunity to have a meaningful relationship. And if I think about what would have happened if we hadn't reconciled, we both would have missed out on the great joy of having the other person as a friend. And our own lives would have been missing something really meaningful. Because when we refuse to reconcile with others, or when we stiff-arm entering into the messiness of reconciliation and the costliness of forgiveness, we miss out on the potential for good things that God has for us. And we see the same thing is true in our text this morning. We see that Saul was an unlikely convert But this didn't stop Jesus from pursuing him. And ultimately, it didn't stop the church from allowing him into their midst. 
but it almost did. There was pause. They were afraid of him. But imagine what the church and what we would have missed out on if they had not let Paul in, if they had, kept, if they had rejected Saul, if they had kept him out. And thankfully they didn't, and, and thankfully we see that they didn't and that Jesus didn't. So if you are still in Acts 9 and your Bible is there, when we come to that this morning, we're in the midst of our series on Acts. And we see this is a critical part of the beginning of the movement of the gospel out of Jerusalem and into the rest of the world. Back in uh, chapter 6 and 7, we see Stephen preach the gospel. He's then stoned. He's put to death for sharing the gospel. And this actually causes a wave of persecution to rise up and scatter the disciples that were in Jerusalem out into the surrounding areas. So they move into Samaria, to Judea, to Damascus, to other parts of, of the world there. And so it's the beginning of the gospel moving out of Jerusalem, moving out of its Jewish context. In chapter 8, we see Philip and his fruitful ministry among the Samaritans, how he leads an Ethiopian to Christ. And we have chapter 9 here, we see Saul's conversion, and we get a glimpse into the fact that he's going to be the, the apostle to the Gentiles, the one who's going to carry Jesus' name to the ends of the earth. And sneak peek in the next week, chapter 10, it's Peter and Cornelius, and it's this definitive new moment in the mission of God where the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles and the full Gentile inclusion movement begins. And so in the midst of this, we have our passage, the beginning of this movement out of Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so we see this strong theme of reconciliation emerge in this text in these two major movements. The first movement is the reconciling work of Christ, where he transforms a hostile enemy into a, devout, a devoted follower. And then the second movement is how the church responds to this transforming work of Christ, where they have to now reconcile with their former enemy and let him into their congregation. So let's take a look at the first movement. In verses 1 through 19, we see that Saul is reconciled to Jesus. Saul, an unlikely convert, is reconciled to Jesus. So we get some background information on Saul that helps paint a better picture of who he was before this encounter. If you take a look at verses 1 and 2, we see that Saul is literally breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Breathing threats and murder against followers of Jesus. In his quest, he obtained letters for extradition to bring disciples of Jesus that are in Damascus to arrest them, to bring them back to Jerusalem and to punish them. It's not a, this isn't a moment of passion or a fit of rage that he's in. It's not just like a, an athlete getting mad at a bad, a bad call. But this is, this is premeditated. He's thought through that he wants to, to eradicate this Christian movement. He's seeking to destroy God's church in God's name. And it's, it's an understatement to say that this is really bad. This is really horrible. But we get a little more context on Saul at the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8. We see that he's present at Stephen's murder and that he's presiding over his execution. It says that they laid their garments down at his feet. He's giving his two thumbs up to this act. We also see that he was ravaging the church. He was seeking to destroy it. He was seeking to snuff out the movement, to eradicate it. And he did this by dragging men and women off to prison. He wanted to eradicate Christianity entirely, and he had set his mind to this purpose, fully thinking that he was doing God's will. He's what you could call today a religious extremist. And so it's in this vein that he heads off from Jerusalem, out to Damascus, trying to 
chased down followers of Jesus who, had, who were in Damascus. He wasn't just content with getting them out of Jerusalem. He wanted them gone from everywhere. But then the unthinkable happens. If you take a look at verse 4, we see that Jesus shows up and speaks to him directly. And he asks the question, why are you persecuting me? And the text tells us that, that Saul was actually set on persecuting the disciples of Jesus. But we learn from this question that in persecuting the disciples, he's actually persecuting Jesus himself, or God himself. It shows us the intimate relationship between Jesus and his followers, that he's actually present with them in such a way that when something is done to a follower of Jesus, it's actually as if it's done to Jesus himself. Jesus promised in the Gospels that he would be with his disciples always, and we see here that that this promise is true, that he is with his followers. And the same is true today. He is with with us, with who are his followers. Saul utters his only words in this story. He says, who are you, Lord? He's perplexed as to who could be talking to him. And Jesus reveals his identity. He says, I am Jesus. This is actually an I am statement, um, similar to the one from Exodus 3 when God is speaking to Moses from the burning bush, revealing his divine name. It identifies the speaker not only as Jesus, but also as God. And as a devout Jew, Saul would have immediately recognized what was going on here when he says, I am Jesus. He would have immediately thought back to Exodus 3 and Moses. And so the same God who actually appeared to Moses and spoke to him in the burning bush is now, has just appeared and is speaking to Saul. This is certainly not the way that Saul would have anticipated the burning, a burning bush encounter would have gone for him. He, fully, he was fully convinced that he was doing God's will here. He, he thought maybe he would get something more like a well-done, good and faithful servant. But he's wrong. And in this moment, he's faced with the harsh reality that he's not being a faithful servant. That he's actually outside of the plan of God. And it's a train wreck moment for him. He has it all wrong. We then see that Jesus directs him to go and to wait in Damascus for further resolution. And so Saul, he leaves this experience blind, and he has to be led into the city by his companions, where he waits, and he fasts, and he prays, and he waits for further instruction. So we see in this, in this part that an encounter with Jesus actually ignites radical transformation in the life of an unlikely person. We learn here just how powerful the gospel is, that God desires for everyone to be saved, even the most extreme of his enemies. Saul's past doesn't disqualify him from being loved and welcomed by God, and neither does ours. He reconciles people from all kinds of backgrounds. The scene then shifts in verse 10. It shifts to Ananias' house. And I find it interesting here that God chooses to bring in Ananias to this at all. He obviously doesn't need to. He just showed up and spoke to Saul on the road and blinded him. He could, he could bring this to completion himself, but he chooses to use Ananias, even though he doesn't need to. He chooses to use people and his church to, to advance his gospel. He doesn't need people. He doesn't need people to advance the gospel, but people are his plan. Ananias was a, a critical part of the, his plan here. Ananias doesn't do anything that God couldn't have done, but God wants to use him. And the Lord gives him directions to go and find Saul so that he can receive a sight. And not surprisingly, Ananias is hesitant here. He is fearful about this proposition. 
He's heard of Saul. He knows why he was coming to Damascus. He knows that he's here to arrest Christians. And so he's skeptical. He's aware of the evil that Saul had done in Jerusalem, and, and he's incredulous that God would want to direct him to go seek him out. And there's this real internal conflict happening in Ananias where he has to wrestle with the radical nature of God's grace. He knew how great the love of Jesus was. He'd experienced it himself, but in this moment, he has to be thinking, really? This guy? And we can relate to that feeling, I feel like. We can think, God, I know you're good. I know you love people. I know you want people to be saved, but, but this guy? Or, or these people? Seriously? Like, do you, do you really want to save ISIS fighters? Or to bring it closer to home, do you, do you really want to save that, that person in my office or in my neighborhood that's, or in my school that's always antagonizing Christians or that's always mocking people of faith? Is this really for fill in the blank, whoever it is that you would find it hard to imagine? Ananias is wrestling with just how radical the grace of God is. Can Saul, the one who came here to destroy God's church, really be someone that Jesus desires to save? Well, the answer is a resounding yes. In verse 15, God reiterates the command to go. Ananias has to put aside his fear in order to obey. God is gracious. He gives him a little bit more information. He offers some insight into the greater purposes that he has for Saul. He says he's not just going to be a disciple, but he's going to be the apostle who takes his name to the nations, who is the leader of the mission to the Gentile world. This is a stunning indicator of an even more radical transformation than we could have imagined. And surely Ananias found this hard to believe, just like we find it hard to believe when certain people become Christians. And we can miss this because we're so familiar with what Saul's ministry becomes, but in this moment in time, this is pretty unthinkable that this guy was going to become a leader of the movement of the gospel. And ultimately, Ananias obeys. He recognizes that although Saul has authority from the chief priests, that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And it's incredible. And Ananias doesn't get enough credit for this. this is a, it's a big step of faith that he shows in obeying God and seeking out this guy who you know is in town to arrest you. It shows incredible faith in God. And it shows that he's overcoming his internal struggle with whether or not he should accept Paul or Saul as part of the community. And we see in verse 17 that he actually lays his hands on Saul and calls him brother. Now to call the man who came to your town in order to arrest you and your friends and to take you back and to punish you for your faith, to call that man brother, that's, a, that's not an easy thing. Ananias recognizes that Saul's submission to Jesus makes him a part of the family. Jesus has welcomed him, so he must welcome Saul as well. Even though everything inside of him would have been screaming against this, he obeys God's command, and he does it. And as a result of Ananias' obedience, Saul's reconciliation is complete. He receives the Holy Spirit, he regains his sight, and he's baptized. It's the unlikeliest of conversions, and it shows us just how powerful and transformative encountering Jesus can be. Jesus can change even the most unlikely people. So we just looked at the reconciling work of Jesus and how an encounter with him can transform the most vehement opponent. 
Next, we're going to look at how those who have been reconciled to Jesus must then welcome those who have experienced this miraculous reconciliation as well. So in other words, the early followers learn here that if they're going to follow Jesus, they have to welcome Saul, even though he was there initially to destroy them. And so as we turn to the second movement of this text, take a look at verses 19 through 30, we see that Saul is reconciled to the community of faith. We see more clearly the transformation that that took place in Saul in this part of the text. We see that he stuck around in Damascus. He doesn't head back to Jerusalem immediately. But he sticks around, and we see in verse 20 that he immediately began preaching Jesus in the synagogues. He didn't have to go to seminary first. He didn't have to, to go through some course. He just jumps right in. He wastes no time in sharing the message that he heard and sharing his own testimony of faith. And there's a temptation for us to think, well, this doesn't apply to us. This is Saul. He's, he's really special. But because we're more familiar with Saul's more developed ability to share the gospel, we're familiar with all of the books that he wrote that are in the New Testament, and we think, okay, this is, this is unique to him, like immediately jumping into ministry. But just like any of us, he would have to have gotten better at this. The very first time that he shares the gospel, it wouldn't have been perfect. It wouldn't have been that more developed version of, of Paul that we know. At this point, he's a newbie, and he's bold to share what he does know, and over time, he gets better. He shares the gospel more and more powerfully as he does it again and again and again. And the same is true for us. We're not exempt from sharing our faith just because we're new to the faith or that we're inexperienced at it. We can get better and better as we do it more and more. And we see that by the time he's forced to leave Damascus, even has his own disciples. He quickly takes up the Great Commission to make disciples. He takes it on himself. And in that short time, he's already got disciples. And again, this isn't just unique to Saul. This this is something that we can all do. But a major part of his testimony is also the witness of his transformation. It's an astounding scene, if you think about it. This guy who everybody knew was in Damascus in order to destroy the faith is suddenly advocating for it. It's like, if you think of, think of it like an arsonist who walks into a fire department, he's going to burn down the fire department, and he walks out as the new chief firefighter. <laughs> You're like, what's just happened here? It's hard to wrap your mind around. And this is even more extreme than that. We see in the text in verse 21 that people were amazed. And this, this word for amazed doesn't so much mean admiring or that they were impressed or that they were wowed by him. It means something more like they're astonished, they're awestruck. They're in shock. They can't believe it. It's jaw-dropping. You think about an Ebenezer Scrooge, how he's known for being the most cold-hearted, stingy person with the neediest of people, and even on Christmas. But he's transformed into the most generous and kind-hearted person. It's like that as well, but even more extreme. But they still identify him with his old way of life. He's known as the one who made havoc in Jerusalem. He's still to them the ravager, the destroyer that we saw earlier. And imagine trying to change your reputation so quickly. It's so bewildering to people that they can hardly wrap their minds around it. Everyone thinks you're there, you're here to arrest him, and now you're advocating for the faith. And It's an amazing testament, again, to the power of the gospel. And that same power is still at work today. Jesus is still in this business of radical transformation. 
But then the story takes a dramatic turn in verse 23 as the persecutor then becomes the persecuted. His former community, Saul's former community, the same religious leaders that he was a part of, they didn't turn on him. They went to destroy him. It's an unexpected turn in the story that we, at the first few verses when he was coming to Damascus, we wouldn't have imagined. The one who came to Damascus to chase down Christians now has to flee Damascus because he's being chased as a Christian. And consider how lonely of a spot this would have been for Saul. He's, his new community is still struggling to wrap their minds around his conversion and who he is, to identify him as one of their own. And then his old community is now seeking to put him to death. He's existing in between these two worlds. He's not fully integrated into the new, but he's no longer a part of the old. And it would be, it would be a lonely spot. But he makes it out of Damascus, and he finally, he finally heads back to Jerusalem. And in verse 26, we see that even this doesn't go smoothly. That the disciples there are still afraid of him. And it's impossible to think that they hadn't already heard word of his conversion. The people in Damascus knew why he was coming, so surely the people in Jerusalem had heard of this transformation. But even so, they still struggled with this. They still struggled to welcome him in. They were afraid, and, and rightfully so. And we can easily imagine this tension. These are the, these are the followers who had, who had seen firsthand just what Saul was capable of. They were the ones who were there when Stephen was put to death. And they potentially, some of them would have even been the ones in Acts 8 that Saul had dragged off to prison in his quest to, to destroy the faith. And so they're wondering, can we trust them? And if we do trust them, are we going to welcome them in? They hadn't yet been forced to deal firsthand with the implications of his conversion. And again, Saul would have felt the sting of this rejection. He would have felt potentially shame over his past. Because the church in Jerusalem hadn't learned this by experience, that they had to welcome converts regardless of their background. And they're confronted with this dilemma. They have to re- wrestle with accepting a former enemy. And it's tough stuff. Like, are, are we supposed to just allow anyone and everyone in at our own peril, at our own, the risk of our own lives? And there's a, there's a temptation. Um, oh, that's the wrong way. Take a look at what happens in verse 27. Barnabas vouches for Saul on the basis of two things. He vouches for him on the genuineness of his conversion, how he had seen the Lord, and then second, on the truthfulness of his gospel, how he had preached boldly in Damascus. And so Barnabas' testimony provides the necessary verification for them that Saul is legit, that he's not trying to infiltrate them with some more sinister scheme here. And there's a touch of wisdom in, in the church wanting to verify Saul's conversion. They want to verify that it's genuine so as not to unnecessarily endanger the flock. And this, it's not a call, so this, this passage isn't advocating for the church to be naive, but it is a call to show radical welcome and, and reconciliation to those who have genuinely encountered Jesus. And it's a call to believe in the transforming power of the gospel to convert even the most vehement of enemies. And after some struggle, the church does indeed welcome Saul. They align themselves with Jesus, who sought Saul and reconciled with him and brought him into the family of God. The church welcomed him as one of their own because they, like him, had been welcomed by Christ. So there's full reconciliation between Saul and the community of faith. And upon his full inclusion in the church in Jerusalem, he gets to work again. He's preaching boldly in the name of Jesus. Similar to his experience in Damascus, we see in verse 29, 
that opposition to his transformation arises from those who are once on his side, he's again being persecuted. The persecutor is being persecuted. And we see earlier that by, we saw earlier that by persecuting the disciples of Jesus, Saul is actually persecuting Jesus himself. Well, we see that the reverse is now true, that instead of Jesus being persecuted by Saul, he's now being persecuted in Saul. And so Saul is sent off to Tarsus, back home, by the church in Jerusalem, to protect his life. And so he slips out of the picture of Acts until the end of chapter 11, when Barnabas goes to find him. So he slides off the scene for a little bit. This is a story of, of unlikely reconciliation. That Jesus first transforms his enemy into a member of his own family, and then his reconciliation and welcome into the family of God is mirrored in the life of the community of faith. They wrestle with the implications of allowing a former persecutor to join their ranks. But the right thing to do is clear, and they follow the example of Jesus, and they welcome the unlikely convert. But where, do, where do we fit into all this? We're not the first century church. We're not Saul. Well, one principle that we've seen a few times already is that encountering Jesus is how transformation happens. We're not the ones who can, who can transform people, but Jesus is. And so we must be faithful to introduce people to Jesus. He's the one who has the power and the authority to transform even the most unlikely of people. So if you think about who, who is the person in your estimation that's most unlikely to become a Christian? Is it somebody in your office or at your school, a neighbor, family member, someone that you know is using their power for evil rather than for good, whether it's someone far off or somebody close by? Do you believe that they're not outside of the reach of the gospel, that they're not outside of the transforming power of Christ? We know that we can't change them, but we can introduce them to the person who can. Saul is a great example of this, that no one's beyond the power of Jesus to transform lives. Nobody's too far gone. Because an encounter with the living Christ can transform even the most impossible or unlikely person. Another clear point is that the community of faith must then follow in the steps of Jesus and welcome those whom he saves. And there's no constraints on this. Those who are reconciled to Christ have to be welcomed by the church. There's not an escape clause because of somebody's background. Saul was a murderous enemy of the gospel, but there was evidence of the genuineness of his conversion and the accuracy of his gospel. And so even the one-time church destroyer had to be welcomed in as a church member. And so there's no basis for excluding those who are following Christ from being part of the church. Our fear and our prejudice has to die. We must be a community of reconciliation and welcome and love towards people from any background who are seeking to follow Christ. And finally, we also see from this passage just how transformational the gospel can be. Saul's an extreme example of this, of how God is not afraid of our past. He's not afraid of our brokenness and our failures. He's not overwhelmed by us or, or unable or unwilling to restore us and to move towards us, to welcome us in, and to use us for his purposes. Nothing disqualifies you from the reconciliation that's available in Christ. He calls people from all sorts of backgrounds, even people like Saul, to believe in him and to follow him, to be a part of his family. If you feel like God can't possibly accept you because of your past, or you feel like if you doubt that he desires a relationship with you, you have to hear this. Jesus welcomes you. He wants you to be a part of his family. 
He can restore any amount of brokenness in your past. He can use you. He can use your life for his purposes. And in fact, he desires to do just that. It's what he wants. He took Saul from being a rabid enemy to being the greatest missionary of all time. And the, Jesus is in the same business today. He's still reconciling men and women from all walks of life to himself. And we see in the very end, in verse 31, that through all this, the church was built up and multiplied. This work of unlikely reconciliation opened up a door for the Spirit to work powerfully through the church. Like I mentioned in the beginning, imagine what they would have missed out on if they hadn't reconciled. The landscape of the New Testament and the early church would have been entirely different if Paul wasn't a part of things, if they had left him out in the cold, if they had rejected him. So may, may we be a church that does not miss out on the great things that God has for us, but instead welcomes those that he welcomes. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful that you have pursued us, that you are a God who welcomes us into your family. We pray for you to be at work in the lives of, of those around us who we think that maybe are beyond your reach. We pray that you would use us in their lives. We pray that we would be a church who, who welcomes others and who mirrors this reconciling work that you have done in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.